You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. King David said, One day in the house of the Lord is better than a thousand elsewhere. Thank you, choir. Well, a couple months ago, I was at SeaTac Airport and I was having a problem with my credit card. I was trying to buy a sandwich before getting on a plane, and uh, the worker said that the machine's not taking the card. There must be some problem with the card, and I'm thinking there must be some problem with the machine. I just used the card three nights ago. And uh, so I used cash, and I walked out later and looked at the card, and everything looked fine except the name was not my name. <laughs> As it happened, I'd been at this coffee shop a few nights earlier, and I had grabbed the wrong card when it was time for me to close out my account, two blue cards. I grabbed the wrong one, and uh, I thought, oh, my gosh, now there's someone, um, you know, there's George Hinman right now is sitting on a beach somewhere in Aruba ordering his third mimosa. Uh, unintentionally, I had perpetrated identity fraud on myself. I'd stolen my own identity. And, you know, and I called and had it all uh, straightened out, canceled the card, got a new card. But today, our text raises a question of identity, not just what's your name on a piece of plastic, but the deeper question of who are you and who gets to say. We're uh, circling back this spring on the core of Christianity, you know, 101, what, are the, what, is, the, what is the basic, uh, simple heart of our faith? This is for those of us who are trying to explore the claims of Jesus and those of us who are also trying to re- reclaim the claims of Jesus in our own lives. And we've seen, first of all, that God is a speaking God. We saw that three weeks ago, so we listen. Uh, last week, we saw that God loves us uh, more than anybody or anything else, and so we trust Him. This is what faith is. It's trust. Today, we're going to see that God gives us a new identity, and so we must learn to claim that identity. Let's open up our Bibles to uh, John chapter 3, verses 3 through 6. You'll find this on page 846 of the Pew Bible. And if you're able, would you stand with me? John chapter 3, verses 3 through 6. This is earlier in the same conversation we discussed last week where Jesus is speaking with a man named Nicodemus. Uh, We'll read these verses together out loud, and then after we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading God's holy word from John chapter 3, verses 3 through 6. Jesus answered him, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh. And what is born of the Spirit is spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just read never will. Please be seated. Let's uh, leave our Bibles open and flip to the right, if you don't mind, please, to uh, Titus. Very small book. You'll find uh, our second passage on page 969 there in the New Testament. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 8a. Titus is so small, we can fit it on two pages in uh, this edition. And this time, let me read, and I invite you just to listen and to imagine. And uh, again, 
when I'm done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. I invite you to say thanks be to God. Uh, remind them, Paul writes to Titus, to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show every courtesy to everyone. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, despicable, hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of any works of righteousness that we had done, but according to His mercy, through the water of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. This Spirit He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is sure. This also is the word of the Lord. Amen. Who are you? Paul says to to Titus, remind them. See that in verse 1. Remind them, he says, of who they are, of who they really are. Titus is not a familiar figure to many of us. Uh, He was a trusted colleague of the Apostle Paul. He was a leader for tough assignments. Paul would refer to him as a son in the faith, as a brother, as a partner, as a co-worker. He was a reliable leader. He was a peacemaker. When Jerusalem could have questioned the authority of this new apostle Paul, Paul took Titus with him. Tough situation. When there were divisions breaking forth in this new church in Corinth, Paul sent Titus. It was a tough situation. And now when Paul needs somebody to organize the churches on the island of Crete, he sends Titus because it's a tough situation. And the reason for that is the Cretans had a reputation If you just look over to chapter 1, verse 12, you'll see what they said of themselves, which was what everybody else in the ancient world said of them. It was one of them, their very own prophet, who said, and now Paul's quoting uh, an ancient prophet, we think from the 7th century, Cretans are always liars, vicious brutes, lazy gluttons. See, they had a reputation. And it was a reputation that at times was earned. Paul himself will say in the next verse, there's some truth to this. Uh, And yet, their reputation does not define them. Their reputation is not an adequate answer, really, to the fundamental question, who are they? And so Paul says to Titus, I want you to remind them of who they really are. Because Jesus had done something to change who they are. Maybe you you noticed that. Look again at the text. In verse 1, he says, remind them. In verse 3, he says, we were once, and uh, Paul's graciously including himself in this characterization. He means we all. We were once this way. Now we look down the page to verse 4, and he says, but when, now this is the action of God and Jesus Christ, but when, and now finally at the end of this sentence, we find out who they really are. In verse 7, 
heirs. They become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Heirs of heaven. They're not who the world says they are. They're not their reputation. And moreover, they are who Jesus says they are. Remind them of this, the Apostle Paul says. Now, what do we learn about ourselves here? I think two things, just very briefly. The first is that we all have a deep need to know who we are. Who are we? One of the most fundamental tasks driving the story of your life is to get a good answer to that question, who am I? We're fascinated, and rightly so, with that question. But particularly today, it's almost like we have this collective amnesia, like the spy, Jason Bourne, who he's got these skills and these habits and these desires, but he doesn't, he's because he can't really remember who he is. He's trying to, for the whole narrative of the plot line, trying to figure out who he really is, what he's meant to do in this life. We have a deep need to know. The second thing I think we, we learn here is that we tend to let the wrong things define us. When we ask the question, who am I? We need to always ask the question, who gets to say? Who should answer? Last weekend, I got a text message from my sister down in California. She was texting the results of 23andMe. She had taken the genetic test and, and graciously sh- saved me some money. We shared some of the information because we're, you know, siblings. And, and I learned as I looked at this that I am 4.6% Scandinavian. I would, that would, I would think there'd be an amen. I mean, I mean, <laughs> maybe if I was Italian, there'd be a robust amen. I don't know. Just, you know, us Northern Europeans, we just didn't say indeed. He's Scandinavian. So, um, that was a surprise to me. I didn't know that. Maybe this explains why I like Nordic skiing. I love to sail. I like fish tacos and Ballard. I don't know. I don't, I don't know what that actually tells me about myself. Um, but I find myself intrigued by that. And, and it's a worthy uh, question to ask, what defines you? Really? Is it your DNA? Is it your Enneagram? Is it your ethnicity? Your gender? Your politics? Your parents, your education, your birthplace, the marketplace, your body mass index, your wealth. One of the things we've learned recently is that Facebook has a detailed profile on each of us. Whether you're a Facebook user or not, they've been building a, a profile. Uh, and, and as you, you, what they're basically feeding you on information on the basis of this profile that they have just constructed and they're nourishing this, this identity in you. Do we really want to be defined by a technology company? See, if we don't listen well, we can't live well. We will hook our identity into something that's unstable, and our lives will be unstable. It's an interesting uh, quote by N.T. Wright, the British writer, who says, the implicit religion of many people today is simply to discover who they really are and then try to live it out, which is, as many have discovered, a recipe for chaotic, disjointed, and dysfunctional humanness because we oftentimes have hooked our identity into something unstable. Who gets to define you, the world or Jesus? Remind them, Titus, Paul says. They are not their reputation. And so we move on. Who does Jesus say that we are? And the simplest way I think I can express it on the basis of this text is this, that you are a child of God. You're a child of God. Not in some universal, generic, psychedelic 60s sense, 
There's a sense in which we're children of God because something has happened. Something has happened in history. God has made a choice, a decisive choice, and it's and the repercussions of that choice have transformed who we are. He saved us, Paul says in verse 5, through the water, literally means the washing of rebirth, which which is... A birth is something, a new thing comes into existence at a birth. There's a new you through the washing of rebirth and then renewal, which is about transformation. There's a better you, this transformation. It's a renewal, a renovation of your true identity. And he goes on, by the Holy Spirit. Through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, you have been saved. Now, this is a dramatic change in the life of any believer. It hasn't yet happened for Nicodemus, so Jesus says, you must be born again. It has happened for these Cretan believers. It's already happened, therefore, Paul says to Titus, remind them they have been saved, past tense. There's a reference here, many commentators think, to to baptism, but primarily the focus is on the work of the Holy Spirit, who brings into existence a new you, a new identity one that enjoys the same relationship to God as Jesus enjoys to God, who is his Father, who is his Spirit. Paul describes this great act of God in one long sentence. It can't can't be rendered very easily into English, but verses 4 through 7 are all one sentence in the way that Paul writes this. And just want you to notice three things in this beautiful sentence. Notice this this identity, three implications. It's an identity described by affection, described by grace, and described by privilege. Notice the affection. In verse 4, he says that, he uses the word loving kindness, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. That word loving kindness is philanthropia. It's the love of God. A man, excuse me, the love of man, philanthropia, like we get our word philanthropic from. This is, a, this is a, an attribute of God. This is a character of God. God is into human beings. He digs human beings. That's what he's saying. This is his thing. God has philanthropia. He loves human beings. Uh, so in essence, what he's saying is you stand in love because of who God is. I met with somebody recently in a coffee shop, and he said, you know, I've come to believe that God is really quite fond of me. And I thought, that struck me. That's absolutely right. God is really quite fond of you because he is a God who's characterized by philanthropia. There's a second attribute, an implication of this identity, and it's grace. He says, Paul, that it's not by any works in verse 5. He saved us not because of any works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy. Actually, in the Greek language, that business about works and grace is the very first thing he says in verse 5. He gets it ahead of the verb, the main verb, he saved us, to, to emphasize us. This, this is not because of any works, anything that you've done. It's not, or not done. This is actually just because of his mercy, because he's, he's gracious. This is who he is. And so you haven't earned this identity, and it, therefore it cannot be taken away from you. It's not a result of your reputation. It's a, a result of Jesus' reputation. You are saved by grace. And then the third implication here is privilege. We keep continue this sentence down to verse 6, and we see this wonderful language of outpouring. He has poured out 
on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, the Holy Spirit. He's poured out on us the wealth of heaven in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God. And he uses the language of inheritance because Jesus is the only Son. He inherits everything. And if we are in Jesus Christ, and the Spirit of Jesus Christ is our spirit, therefore we also will inherit everything with Jesus Christ. It's that new nature inside of us. It's the nature that comes from God, comes from heaven. Like begets light, because the principle in the ancient world. And Paul is drawing on that principle here. You are inheritors of all the wealth of heaven. You're soaked, therefore, in privilege. You stand in love, you're saved by grace, and you are soaked in privilege. He's poured it out. Now you say, well, that sounds wonderful, perhaps, but it doesn't sound like me. (laughs) And I want to tell you, if you think that, if you think that this sounds like somebody else, like a saint or a Christian leader or a pastor, heaven forbid me, then you're missing the point. Because Jesus is talking about something, or Paul is talking about something that applies to everybody who has faith in Jesus Christ. And I want to say to you that you can only know yourself by faith. That's the only way you can answer the question, who am I? It's through faith. Remember, faith is trust. We talked about that last week. Trusting in the work and promise of God in Jesus Christ. Now, if this weren't the only way, why would Paul have to tell Titus to remind the Cretans? Remind them of who they are. He has to say that because they can't see who they are right now except through faith. He's got to remind them of what Jesus has said about them because they can't see the truth of it when they look at them. The world yet can't see the truth of them when they look at these Cretan believers. I can't see 4.6% Scandinavian when I look in the mirror. I don't know what that would look like. I definitely can't see it in myself. What if you took 23andMe and you got this genetic test back and they gave you your kind of earthly ethnicity, but at the end they said, you are 100% a child of God. Origin, heaven. Whoa, really? Because I can't see that. And he goes, yeah, we can't see that either. But that's the truth. You have spiritual DNA. You have the DNA of Jesus that's running through your body. You're from heaven. That's, that's where you're from. That's where you're going. That's what Paul is trying to say. Titus, remind them of this great truth. Well, how do we see it? We have to look to Jesus. We get to look to Jesus with the eyes of faith. John Calvin said, you know, we really can't know. No human being can know himself or herself without knowing God. The only way to know who you are is to know who God is. Because it's only as we look to Jesus and discover the true nature of God do we discover that we are held in affection, we are held in grace, we are held in great privilege. Tom Torrance, the Scottish theologian, was given an office. He was a, he was a, um, the head of the Presbyterian Church for a little while in Scotland. And uh, when he rose to office, one of the Highlanders asked him if he was born again. You know, this congregation likes to check out their leaders from time to time. Were you born again? And, and he said, certainly, when the Scotsman pressed. And he said, I can still see his face when I told him that I had been born again when Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary and rose again from the virgin tomb, the firstborn from the dead. He looked confused. When he asked me to explain, I said, this Tom Torrance is hid with Christ in God and will be revealed only when Jesus Christ comes again. He took my corrupt humanity in His incarnation, sanctified, cleansed, and redeemed it, giving it new birth in in His death and resurrection. 
I love that. See, so often we think the born-again experience must be some emotional experience, and many of us can't say we've had that. We, can't, we never heard the angels of heaven breaking open in heavenly chorus over our lives because we have faith in Jesus. We, we're not even sure exactly when we came to faith in Jesus. We just are sort of on this journey. And the good news is that the real experience that matters is not a subjective experience inside of ourselves. It's an objective experience that happens at the center of history. It's the birth of Jesus Christ as a human being. His death and resurrection, his birth from the tomb. It's what he does to our human nature to transform it and make it, in its authentic sense, the humanity that God created it to be. And to give us that gift through the Holy Spirit. Claim your identity, Paul urges us through this text, by faith in Jesus Christ. Contrary to what the culture tells us, you do not find your identity by looking deeper into yourself, deeper levels of introspection, trying to plumb the depths of your desires to figure out what's unique about you versus every other person who has maybe very similar desires in the world. No, look to Jesus, listen to Jesus, and then we will discover what is unique about each and every one of us. Claim your identity by faith. Brothers and sisters, here's why this matters. Identity is destiny. Identity is destiny. The New York Times ran a headline a couple weeks ago, and it said this, I'm not rude, just French. (laughs) They were quoting a a man named Guillaume Ray, who uh, was a waiter until recently in Canada, and uh, he has suing his restaurant for what he calls cultural discrimination. They, they fired him because of complaints that he was, he was being rude. What he had to educate everybody in the restaurant is, no, I'm not being rude, I'm just being French. Everybody knows that the great waiters are French waiters and the French waiters are rude waiters, and so I'm just being myself. And you can't fire somebody for being themselves, can you? Uh, well, apparently you can in Canada. You see, the insight here is that if you tell a Cretan, just you do you, then what you get is a Cretan doing a Cretan thing. He's uh, somebody who acts as a liar, a brute, and a glutton. But if you tell a Cretan, as Paul is urging Titus to do, to do the real you, the true you, the you that you are because of who Jesus Christ is, then you get a follower of Jesus who lives before the world with all the affection, grace, and privilege of God. And that's our destiny because of our identity. Those who know who they are will grow to live like Jesus lived. Oh, it's a slow, painfully slow and gradual process, but it's an inevitable one. What does that process look like? Who do these people look like? Well, to me, they look like an addict who struggles again and again and again, but knows he will not be defined by his addiction. And so he constantly claws his way back into rehab. It looks like a woman who has suffered at the hands of an abusive partner, but she walks away because she no longer needs the validation she craved in the affections of a man because she's founded in Jesus. It looks like a con artist being a real person for the first time, being vulnerable to a small group behind bars and serving his sentence and making restitution to former clients. It looks like the daughter of a fundamentalist mom who will never love her for who she is, 
but who nevertheless decides to trust the Holy Spirit to love this mother now because they won't have much more time together. It looks like a black man and a white man holding hands together in a cotton field because they believe that what they share together is greater than the racialization that would otherwise separate and destroy them both. It looks like somebody who's claiming their real identity as a child of God and resisting every other voice that would tell them otherwise. I wonder if we saw it in a man named Ken Lamb last week. Did you catch that story up in Toronto? This is a police officer, a constable, who de-escalated that crisis. Ken, I think we need to honor our law enforcement officers and just thank them for what they do because uh, sometimes there's some bad publicity, but for one bad police officer, there are hundreds of good ones who risk their lives every single day for you and me. And this man, Ken Lamb, was a great example of that. He stood up there facing a man who just killed 10 people who had a gun in his hand, and he de-escalated the situation. He took a moment to reach into the squad car and turn off the siren, and then he said to the guy, get down. And the guy says, I'm going to kill you. He said, I don't care. Get down. I'm going to kill myself. Get down. I've got a gun. I don't care. Get down. And he single-handedly apprehended this killer. How did he do it? Well, I'm sure that good training helped. But it's more than that. I think it's that Ken Lamb knows who he is. He felt secure in that moment. We learn later from subsequent interviews that he's a second-generation police officer. His dad is a police officer from Hong Kong. And what his dad says about him is this, son, I'm proud of you. How many boys need to hear that from their dads today? How many girls need to hear that from their dads today? Son, I'm proud of you. I don't know if Ken Lamb has an awareness of his heavenly father, but this is the same message that he would receive if he looked to Jesus Christ. I love you. I delight in you. I'm proud of you. Well, tomorrow, actually, as it happens, I'll be at SeaTac again. I'm going back east for a conference of pastors, and I'm going to be much more careful with my credit card, I promise you. But I'd like to suggest today that maybe for all of us, every time we use a credit card this week, we take the occasion as we pull that piece of plastic out to remember who we are, to remember our true identity as children of God. We ought to be more careful with our identity not just believe we are who our reputation says we are. Because, and you can't always see it, the real you is awesome. And they say, Jesus is really quite fond of you. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for this good news. We believe, but help us in our unbelief, we pray. Thank you for your presence with the Holy Spirit. Pour out the Spirit on us, just as you promised to pour out on Bryn through the sacrament of baptism. Those of us who have been baptized have died with Christ. We rise with Christ. Now we walk with Christ through the Holy Spirit. Fill us afresh. In Jesus' name, amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.